sometimes referred to as a small little book by the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And Habakkuk is someone who um, I like a lot because he's a questioner. Someone who questions not only life, but questions God himself. And maybe you, if you were um, possibly, I don't know, in some challenges of life recently, you are going to find a friend in Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk would not settle for just soft little Jesus or God answers. But one of the challenges that we have with the book of Habakkuk is that, um, well, the whole questioning God thing isn't a nice little tidy package. And so this message, as well as this whole series, may not make you feel completed. It may not give you the answers that you have in your life questioning God. Oh God, why is this happening? Sometimes there's clear answers. Sometimes there's not. You know, some people like sitcom sermons. You know what a sitcom is, right? Did you grow up with a favorite sitcom? How many people were Happy Days people kind of thing, right? Yeah, Happy Days, Brady Bunch. There's a story, right? How, Andy Griffith, that's really old. That's dating yourself there. That's kind of thing, right? Yeah. Little Rascals. Got any other sitcoms you liked? How about some of you younger people, you millennials? Who are your, some, what's some of your sitcoms? Friends, of course. Everybody has friends. What, right? What's that? Family ties. All right. Now, what's a sitcom have? Well, a sitcom, well, it has humor in it. And then it has some tension. It moves into some tension. Sometimes not. Sometimes so. Into the plot line. But then after 30 minutes, including commercials, it all gets wrapped up in a nice little package. And you go, oh, that was a nice little enjoyable half an hour. And then you move on. Whether it's to your next sitcom or something else that you're doing, right? Well, this is not a sitcom sermon. This is not a sitcom series. Because Things are not going to be wrapped up really nice and neat and packaged well. And oh, that was a little journey. There's going to be tension. Just as surely as you have tension and unresolved angst in your life concerning some things that have happened or are happening to you right now. But you're going to find a friend in Habakkuk because he was not going to hold back from his angst and his concern, especially when it came to questioning God. Habakkuk, the word itself, the name itself, means to embrace or to wrestle. Habakkuk. However you want to pronounce it. Habakkuk. You have in the name itself the journey of what's going to happen in these weeks. Now, we start out with the prophecy in verse 1 that Habakkuk the prophet received. Another translation will call it the oracle. It's a pronouncement. It's a sense of doom, actually. It's a burden that he's going to unload. Habakkuk was one of the minor prophets. If you're to study the history of Israel, 
there were 12 different tribes. They were all united at one time under King David. It was their glory days. And um, the nations that were in the top of what we know today is Israel, the 10 tribes up there, and they ended up falling a number of years prior to Habakkuk's time of pronouncement uh, to the Assyrians. But Habakkuk shows up on the scene somewhere around 605 BC, 600 uh, years about before Jesus Christ walked on the earth. Habakkuk is there and he's got some contemporaries. His contemporaries are Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And he was about 10 to 15 years older than the prophet Daniel. If you took all of the scriptures, the scriptures have a lot of different kinds of books, a lot of different kinds of literature, but there's a whole section called the prophets. There's 17 books of the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah. But there's a difference between what's referred to as the major prophets and the minor prophets. I guess the minor prophets, you know, they never got into the big leagues. They never got the Nike contract or the sports drink, you know, commercials going. They, they were just the minor guys. But it wasn't minor because they were of less importance. Literally, the only reason they're called the minor prophets is because we have less information and a less amount written from them. Habakkuk is only three chapters. But here's Habakkuk in these three chapters dealing and wrestling with the other two tribes that were a part of the full nation that were not exiled or taken over by the Assyrians. And he was speaking to Judah. Judah was the southern part of Israel at the time, and Judah was up against some very difficult and troubling times. It actually was four or five years right after the good king Josiah. And Josiah was a great king who led Israel into following hard after God. But after Josiah, there was not a good king. And the kings that started to rule from there actually led Judah astray once again. Sort of seems to be the history of the Old Testament with God's people. Why can't they get their act together and keep their act together? But here Judah is not sort of just tiptoeing their way to a cliff. It's almost like they're rushing over the cliff. Corruption, immorality, idolatry. He's looking at it all around him. And he can't stand it anymore. And so he gets this oracle, this prophecy where he's going to speak God's word to the people. But the unique thing about Habakkuk versus all the other prophets is that Habakkuk didn't like give this pronouncement as much as he entered into a dialogue or a discussion with God. You see a prophet's known as speaking from God to the people. A priest, a lot of times, was known as representing the people back to God. But Habakkuk had this unique, priestly, prophetic kind of edge to him. We don't know much about Habakkuk. It seems that he was probably a younger guy. And in his really younger years, he was probably up on the worship team in the temple. And then somehow he sort of moved into a priestly kind of role. 
And then from there, you know, he started to engage in maybe more of a public kind of uh, demonstrative ministry. But he was broken hearted about what was happening with God's people. And he was broken hearted about what he was seeing happen in the nation. And he went to God to complain on behalf of the people. God, do something. This doesn't seem right. He was probably begging and seeking God that God would send another good king. But as you're going to see, that wasn't God's choice to send another good king in the midst of the corruption and the uh, idolatry and all the, the difficult things were happening in the culture that day. So Habakkuk. One. One, the prophecy, the oracle, the doom, the burden unloaded. And so in verses 2 through 4, you start out and you hear his complaint before God. Have you ever complained to God? Maybe you're too nice. Oh, God, I don't, you know, I... I hate to say this, but inside you're going, God, why is this happening? Well, that's Habakkuk. And so it says this, beginning with verse 2, his complaint to God. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save why? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Now, those are some of his questions. But I tell you what, your questions are just as real and maybe just as raw this morning when you cry out, why all the injustice, the wrongdoing? And I tell you, there's almost two tiers, uh, two levels that you can interpret and really study and seek God from concerning Habakkuk. The first level, I believe, is the national level. Because we look around and we wonder why is there injustice or, or why is the culture adrift in some of its own corruption ways. The idolatry that we see and, and some of the other things that happen. You're like crying out to God, look, look at the immorality that's happening in my nation and my, my city even. And maybe you have that kind of cry and it's at a, at a more of a, a corporate, a public kind of level. But there's also this cry of injustice that happens from a personal level. The cry that, that looks around you and goes, well, why, why are things not going right in my life? When, when look at them, they're, they're not a follower of God and they all seem to be doing really nicely and, and have things going well. I mean, I try to raise my kids and, and I've, I've tried to be involved in their lives and they're, they're lost right now. They're going down some tracks, and, and whether it's uh, areas of just irresponsibility or promiscuity or drug-related, you know, it's like, uh, why me? And then look at them. They don't follow God, and their kids are turning out totally fine. You know, why is it that, that I seem to um, walk the right road, but nothing ever goes right for me at work? 
I get passed over for the promotions. And the other people who I know, they're not really forthright. They sort of get those promotions. And why is it that, that I've really sought to take care of my life and my body and do things well? And I am the one who is sick. And I have the issues that are holding me back physically. And others, man, they, they do all kinds of stuff. And they seem to be doing well. In fact, some of them are 100 years old. Look at that. Not me. And so the national level is a place for us, I think, to engage the book of Habakkuk, but also the personal level. The first time I was ever exposed to the book of Habakkuk, I remember when I was a young adult and I was attending a large mass conference in uh, Champaign, Illinois, at the University of Illinois campus. And it was uh, a conference put on by InterVarsity called Urbana. And Urbana would talk about missions and things. And that was back before all the lights and whistles as it relates to video and screens and that kind of thing. And they had this, this slide show with you know, like 20 slide projectors, and it was all automated. And they went through the book of Habakkuk in a short 15 to 20 minute journey, showing images of what was happening in the country and the culture at that time. That was back in the early 80s. And you think, wow, what would a multi slide presentation look like today with our culture? Because he was crying out, and he was complaining, and he was bothered. He was bothered by the injustice that was at a national level, but it was his people, it was God's people, and he was crying out even on a personal level from himself. Verse 4, therefore the law is paralyzed, and justice never seems to, never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so the justice is perverted. This is his heart cry. And I want to encourage you today that um, it's okay to cry out to God. It's okay to cry out to God. He, you could probably sum up some of his cries. You move all the way through the whole book into uh, three questions. God, you don't seem to care. You ever thrown that one at him? Or, God, you aren't doing much when you could. Aren't you all powerful? Aren't you all loving? You know, I'm mindful that in a, a series such as this, and, and especially, I don't know why you came today, maybe you're a regular part of hanging around here, maybe you showed up because of invited somebody else, or maybe even a social media invite. I'm conscious that we all come from so many various backgrounds, spiritually or non-spiritually, church-going, non-church-going. And it's hard to jump into the question, complaining to God, questioning God, when maybe your question today is, is there even a God? And that's a legitimate question. And I think one of the, the challenges I hear often from people that doubt belief in God is, how can there be a God that exists? When there's all these problems in the world and in my life, and that's a very legitimate question. Because when we believe in a God that would exist, we would think that God who exists, there's two things that would be true about him. One, he would be all-powerful and that he would be all-loving, right? Well, if 
there is a God, and He's all-powerful and all-loving, then why does this exist? But look at all the injustice and the corruption and the immorality and hardship that exists, so there must not be a God. And that is a legitimate claim, uh, complaint or way to try to reason yourself to logic. But one of the key questions in that that you have to ask yourself is, God actually not done? Could it be that he's writing out a story that I'm unaware of? But many times when we have the God questioning thing going, it's not just do we question if there's a good God. We question if there is a God. And if you're in that camp this morning, I just say, hey, keep hanging on, keep checking out. You're here probably because there's some impression in your heart that maybe God's there. Maybe the Spirit of God might be speaking or working on your life. He wants to work in your life. And many of us around you have found that God to be true, even though His justice and His love has not superseded all things yet. God, you don't seem to care. God, you aren't doing much when you could. Aren't you all-powerful? Aren't you all-loving? And then, God, what you are doing doesn't seem to be fair. I find that one interesting because a lot of times on the journey, we see God doing something, especially maybe when he's doing it to other people, and we're sort of left out in the cold. But it's like, okay, God's on the move, but he ain't on the move in my house. That don't seem fair to me, right? So Habakkuk, whose name means embrace, Russell, he questions God. And he questions God very sincerely and very directly. But I want to ask you this question. What do you do when what you see with your eyes is so different than what you believe in your heart? I want to put this curve up here before you. It's actually called The Dip. Um, there's a book out on The Dip that takes this curve by um, a guy by the name of Godin, but he takes it a different direction for some other things which are good and fine, but I'm going to take this dip and we're going to walk through someone's life. You ready? So on this curve of life, there are people that are down here, and maybe you're down there. The people down here at the bottom of this curve, um, they really have no relationship with God. Um, they're not on a journey with Him. And that may be for various reasons. Maybe it's because something happened in their life, whatever, or they didn't grow up, grow up around encouragement to understand God. But they're down here. But then they start to sense God working in their life. The Spirit of God begins to touch them. They start showing up at church a little bit. They, they build some friendships made with people that, that know Christ. And, and, and their heart is strangely warmed and sensitive, and they start to, to learn things uh, about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and they come to this place to believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is, and they, and they do something really huge in their life. They actually step across the line of faith, and they make a commitment to follow Christ. And it's like, boom! 
They're at the top of the hill. Their sins are forgiven. They're excited about what God's doing in their life. They begin to pray, and circumstances start to change in their life. It's like, wow, how neat is that? And their friends are going, okay, they're getting a little weird. I I don't want them to do that. I hope they come back to us. I don't know. But, man, you are excited. God's working in your life. I mean, you come to church, and you listen to the guy speak up front, and, man, boom, it's like right there it hits me. He was speaking to directly to me. You go and you get in your car and you turn on the radio and wow, your favorite song is on right there. You take off, you go down to the mall and and you're going to park and looky there, there is a spot right in front of the store that I'm going into. God, you are so good, man. You are rising on a high. You been there? Woo! Thank you, Jesus. This is sweet. This Christian faith is. I should have done this a long time ago. And so you're riding high. You're riding high. But then, you know, some things start to move along. And you come to church one Sunday. And, and you know, it didn't really quite connect with you. And you weren't too sure about that message. And, and so then you go out and you get in your car. And it's a terrible song. And so you change it to something else. And, and things just don't seem to be lining up. And so you start, to, you start to have some of these issues going on. It's like, well... The prayers aren't being answered. I, I don't necessarily feel as close to God as I, I sort of once was. And then something happens. Something happens. Somebody dies. Or something really doesn't work out that you've been praying about and thinking about. And, and you come to what Henry Blackaby, who wrote a book called Experiencing God, calls the crisis of belief. And what are you going to do in that crisis of belief? You're like, hey, God, there's some injustice happening in my life right now. And I've been praying about it, and you've not been taking care of it. And, you know, I I look around at some other people. They're not hanging with you, and they seem to be doing pretty good. And then some other kinds of things happen. And you have a choice. You have a choice when this crisis of belief hits you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's actually three primary things you can do. The first is you can sort of jump back up here and try to remove any negative thinking. Just believe, hey, I lost my job, but I'm going to get another job. And yeah, that cancer is going to end up taking that person's life, but that's okay. And you sort of just do that positive thinking. Now, let me tell you this. There's nothing wrong in being able to stay on the positive side of what God's doing and what he's happening. But you do not want to live in denial in life. You don't want to live in denial. You don't want to live in some type of superficial faith that says, oh, everything's okay. No, you have a choice here in this crisis of belief. And you can try to jump back up here. You can put on the Jesus smile and go around. Everything's fine. Thank you very much. You know, I... I <laughs> I recently, I probably shouldn't do this, but every now and then people ask me how I'm doing, and I'll just tell them how I'm really doing. You ever do that? They're like, oh, I didn't ask for that. <laughs> I just thought you were going to say, hey, everything's fine. I may say, hey, life's really running fast right now. It's, it's a burden or something, right? It's like, oh. But I want to be real. I want to be transparent with what's happening. I don't want to be a downer on people all the time. And I get weary about being around that too. I want people faith-filled, optimistic. Jesus can lead, yes. But I don't want to be in denial. 
And I don't want to try to back, jump back up here in a superficial way. Oh, everything's fine. I'm so excited. No, because that's not how life's lived. In this oracle of Habakkuk, he's being real. He's not jumping up there. The other thing is you can go back to here. You can say, I guess maybe it wasn't real. I guess maybe uh, the wool was pulled over my eyes. And, and, and you just go back to not only uh, doubting, you go back into disbelief in a very negative sense. And that's not good either. Or the third thing. The third thing is you can move on. Down into the dip. Down into the valley. You can move on in trusting God. You have a choice. You have a choice in your life right now with what you're up against to either sort of just revert back to uh, thinking everything's fine and not being real. Or you can just bunker down in a pit of depression and disbelief. Or you can go on this journey. And on this journey, you begin to trust God. You begin to trust God and he begins to start to show himself valuable, not in maybe what he's doing, but who he is. And as you begin to trust God, some other things begin to be refined and worked out in your life because, you know, his, his most important thing is not about you being happy. It's about you being holy and being Christ-like and walking with him. So he's working in a process in your life, even though circumstantially things don't seem to be right, whether on a national level or on a personal level. And God continues to strengthen and gain um, a foothold in your life and reveal himself to you in some powerful, positive ways. And you start to have an intimacy with Christ that you've never had before. You learn to trust God no matter what's happening. And there's a sense of security and a stabilizing in your faith. And I don't know about you, but the people that I know, that have journeyed well with God through the highs and lows, through the dips or whatever, they are people that are marked by the, the aspect of intimacy and trust and security. And sometimes I'm like, hey, hey, I want to be there. How do I get there? Well, friend, you don't get there by jumping back up here and trying to live on a superficial high and ignore things. You don't get there by just walking totally in the direction and just disbelieving God and walking away from him. You've got to go into the dip, into trusting God, and begin to allow him to work through the situation, whatever is going on in your life, to see that there would be change. So, that's why the New Testament, the book of James and others, it, it'll talk about a season of doubt. And this doubt is where God's formative work is at. And some of you wish you were there or you remember when you were here. Or maybe if you're here this morning, you're down here. I want to encourage you. It's a good thing to go on. But this season of doubt, this crisis of belief that's identified by this box in this lower part of the dip, it's okay to be there. It's okay to be there. And maybe you're there today. Because as the New Testament and, and James says, it's like, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because 
you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Amen? Well, you say amen, but have you been there? That's not fun. Consider it pure joy? Yeah. Because joy is not about your happiness. Joy is about knowing that you're in the right place and right relationship with your God, moving forward in the direction that he's called you to. And he will build in you intimacy, trust, and security. Do not neglect or run from a crisis of belief. Own it. Own it and talk to God about it. Because Habakkuk chapter 1 is right here. This is Habakkuk 1. And if you had to put a label on chapter 1, it would be wondering. I'm wondering, God, where are you? I'm wondering, God, what's going on? I'm wondering, God, if you really care. I'm wondering, God, if this will ever change. So God answers. God answers. And how do you think he's going to answer? I think Habakkuk's sitting there saying, bring it on, man. I'm ready, God. I, I laid it out there. God, you're going to bring a new king, right? This is what God says to Habakkuk. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you will not believe, even if you were told. Now, this verse a lot of times is used by people who are wanting you to look forward to God's work and revival and renewal. And, and, but that's really not, I mean, you can do that. But that's not the heart of the intent here. He's going to do something utterly amazing. Great, I can't wait, can't wait. And then God says this. And you talk about dropping the mic, a boom. It hit the floor. When God spoke back to Habakkuk. I'm raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people. Who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now friends the Babylonians were bad dudes. The Assyrians were bad. The Babylonians were worse. The Babylonians they, they uh, would kill the kings of the lands. And take over lands around them. Babylon is where? Babylon is to the east of Israel. It's in modern day Iraq. And the Babylonians, they, they came and they would just sweep over and take over places. And the Babylonians, everybody knew about the Babylonians. It was like, boo, we don't want the Babylonians, right? It's like if I spoke at, uh, at a church in Seattle and I said something about, hey, the 49ers made the Super Bowl. <laughs> boo, right? Nobody liked the Babylonians. It was like, they're terrible. 
They, they, they kill the kings, and, and, and when they don't think people are being uh, servile to them, they'll take skulls and put them in the, in the public square just to remind people what will happen to them if they don't behave. The Babylonians were not good. They were not good at all. And Habakkuk, I'm sure, sits back in stunned amazement, right? Stunned amazement. God said, they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind, and they go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. That last statement there is key. Their strength is their God, and they will horsepower up their strength time and time again to show that they have this incredible power with their God. I want to encourage you this. It was true of Habakkuk. A deeply committed believer can express simultaneous questions and faith. He was a prophet. He was looked up to. He was not a weak believer. But he had questions. But in his questions, he also carried his faith. And some of the best seasons in your life as a Christian believer are those when you're wrestling, as Habakkuk did with God in that time. And when you have questions, doubts, and you carry a faith, it's okay. It's okay. Because God will show and teach you things there along that way that maybe he couldn't show and and teach you in in any other kinds of dimensions. You know, in uh, Mark chapter 9, there's the story of a father who had been trying to take care and and work with his son, and his son uh, had some significant issues going on, and it talks about this boy being healed of an evil spirit by Jesus. And the father comes to him and he complains and, and he, he asks God to, to Christ to do something. And Jesus comes and he works a miracle by touching this young boy's life and freeing him of these spirits. But before he does that, he has a dialogue with the father. Jesus asked the father, verse 21, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him to the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us, Jesus. (laughs) If I can, said Jesus, I'm the guy. Come on. What do you mean, if I can? Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, 
I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's a classic story of Scripture, of Jesus, as he worked with people and as he works with you. You may not have a son or a daughter who's not merely in depression or other things, but actually is in spiritual warfare. And God is coming to help you through the power of the cross bring freedom to his life. You may have some other issue going on that you doubt. And Jesus says, if I can, of course I can. I can take broken pieces and make beautiful things. I can recreate what has been lost. I can take the broken heartedness that you have because you've had so many miscarriages and I can give you a healthy baby. I can intercede and, and, and I can take on the tough love that's needed for your son or your daughter and see them brought through into a vibrant faith if you'll just journey with me as I work in their heart. In a situation at work, I got it. It's okay. But it's going to take some time. That health issue in your own life? Yeah. I'm Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. But sometimes God heals in other kinds of ways. And God is able, and he asks you and I, if I can, do you believe? And sometimes all we can say if we're in that crisis of belief is I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Are you wondering? Friday night, some from this group here um, who have disabilities were a part of Tim, Lebo, uh, Tim Tebow's um, Night to Shine prom. One of those that had that opportunity is my own son, Levi. And he ate it up. But you know, when he was born, it was a crisis of belief for me. At that time, I was uh, riding on a high. I was a part of a young church plant that was going really well. I mean, like really well. It was one of those God things where you step back going, I, I, we're just riding the wave. And God had encouraged us, I felt, at least I thought, to step out and try to go from the storefront to buy some property, build a building, and, and really become a lighthouse, a mission in that area of, of a metropolitan city. And so uh, I, I started taking those initiatives, and, and I had a board meeting coming up uh, in a day where we were going to make decisions to move forward with it. And then all of a sudden, my wife called, I, my water broke, I'm going to the hospital, we got to go to the hospital. So we went, and we went to the hospital, and hey, it's my third boy, so I'm good with this. I, I got the routine down. And, and as, as we get ready for the birth and everything, it all sort of happens well. And, and I had my routine down, and Melissa had her friend there, so I was fine. So 2 a.m., I'm taking my nap, man. And so, uh, so, so I go to sleep, and a couple hours later, I get woken up by my wife, and she says, uh, we've got some concerns. And uh, it was from there that the diagnosis came of Down syndrome, and, and, and it rocked my world a lot. The next day, they went ahead with that board meeting, and they voted no. I remember sitting on a porch swing, just crying with a friend, going, this doesn't make any sense. Why would God do this? But, you know, when, 
when I saw his pictures from the other night, I just had to smile because that was a season of doubt, a crisis of belief. God, are you really with me? I've been serving you. I thought you would go forward with this. This thing's going to happen, right? And it's not happening. And look at this. The church is a no-go. And, and now I'm into a special needs community. I have no knowledge of what the future that is. But God worked in my life over these 21 years. And I looked at those pictures you posted. And I thought, silly me, how stupid I was, how insecure I was, how much I was doubting God that he could work. God works. God works through a crisis of belief. God works when we don't think that he's caring. And God works and he reframes the interior part of your life in a way that will build houses that are strong for you to live in into eternity. Are you in chapter 1 wondering? Habakkuk comes back with questions. Lord, are you not from the everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Seriously? The Babylonians? Boo! They're terrible people. How could that be any answer to my situation? Your eyes are too pure, though, to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked shout, swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Do you see what you're seeing here? When you don't see with your eyes what you believe in your heart and things are incongruent, you have this crisis of belief. But as you move forward through that dip, you carry both your doubt and your faith. And it's a weird mix, but you keep moving through it. Just as surely as Habakkuk hears here in chapter 1 as he's wondering. In verse 14, You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler, the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his nets. He gathers them up for his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. He's thinking, he's looking about the Babylonians, knowing that they're next door and they can take over whatever's going to happen. And he says, they're terrible, but yet I know, God, that you will not die, that you will live. Therefore, he sacrifices, he says, of these Babylonians his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and he enjoys the choicest food. He's just pulling his hair out going, I don't understand it. Why do the unrighteous prosper? And we who are seeking you, God, are in the condition that we are. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? You just going to keep letting them do it, God? Huh? Are you? Chapter 1. Wondering. Are you there? I told you it's not a sermon sitcom. It's not going to be tidied up here today. Or maybe even in this series. But I want to point you 
that there is a journey. Chapter 1 is about the wondering. Chapter 2 of Habakkuk is about the waiting. And chapter 3 will be about the worship. So what do you do when you're in the dip? How do you counsel your friends? Oh, just give up on that marriage. I can't believe he ran off with a 20-some-year-old. You stay in there. And you take your pain and the hurt, the mixed emotions you have, and you let God work. And you give God space. And you give God time. You embrace Him. And you wrestle with Him. You Habakkuk Him. Don't let Him go. He will not let you go. That I can promise. But when you Habakkuk Him, you are embracing Him to learn who He is in His richness. And yes, you are wrestling with Him. But that's okay. Even as painful and as difficult as it may be. Let's pray.